traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. Within the classic horror genre, there is a subgenre of film called the old dark house film. And it's one of those subgenres that's a little loose in some areas, and people will debate which film was actually the first in that category. But generally speaking, an old dark house film will share one or some of several tropes. The first one is a given. It's usually set in an old dark house, or at least one spooky location. And the genre actually originated on stage, with plays like The Cat and the Canary in 1922. So they needed to be in one place, so it was easy to produce on the stage. Next, a group of people come to the house. Sometimes they are invited but they don't really know why. Sometimes they appear to be there at random or by accident, but actually they're not. But sometimes they are genuinely there by chance. Sometimes the people who gather will know each other, sometimes they won't, but often there is some kind of connection between them, even if it's not immediately apparent. In many cases, the thing that can be traced to them all in some way is the host, the person who has brought them all together for some reason. And that ties into another recurring trope, an element of mystery. Why are all these people here? And what does this mysterious host intend to do with them? The film that gave the subgenre its name is the 1932 film directed by James Whale and starring Boris Karloff. It wasn't the first in the genre, but it's the one that seems to typify a lot of these tropes and the name seemed to fit, so it stuck. I'm no expert on these films, so there may be exceptions to this rule, but from the old Dark House films I have seen, and from my research, the way things are usually done is that the characters come to the house cold. We don't know why they're there or what the plan is. These are mystery films, so what the host has in store for them is usually part of that mystery. She's all set, Mr. Raiden. How about the sound system? You check that out? She's all ready to go. I don't know where you got your sound effects, but you'd swear a bomb was exploding. I mean a big bomb. That's precisely the way it's supposed to sound. You've got quite a setup here. This part of the illusion too? No, this room is not an illusion. I venture to guess that it's the best designed bomb shelter on the face of the earth. Who knows? The hydrogen bomb is not an illusion. But tonight it's for gags, huh? Something of the sort. A practical joke, let's say. Oh, you can say that again. Well, when they start those sound effects going and that 
stuff on the screen, you'd swear the whole world was getting blasted. No, that's a general idea. I have three guests coming this evening, rather special guests. By the time the 1960s rolled around, there were several of these old Dark House films about. So perhaps it was time to reinvent the genre for the atomic age, or maybe even deconstruct it. And the man to do it was Rod Serling, and the place, the Twilight Zone, and the episode, one more, Paul Bearer. What you have just looked at takes place 300 feet underground, beneath the basement of a New York City skyscraper. It's owned and lived in by one Paul Radin. Mr. Radin is rich, eccentric, and single-minded. How rich we can already perceive, how eccentric and single-minded we shall see in a moment. Because all of you have just entered the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on January 12, 1962. Written by Rod Serling and directed by Lamont Johnson. So Rod Serling's open narration is pretty sparse again this time, but you know how I love that little bit of interaction with the set. So his appearance behind the elevator door is a welcome one. We again have Lamont Johnson directing, and we've met him quite recently on more than one occasion, so I won't go into his bio again here. Now, I have to say the trivia related to this episode is very, very minimal indeed. There aren't any quotes that I can really bring to it. I think this is one of those episodes that probably sits in that Twilight Zone bracket where it doesn't sit in top 10 lists usually, but it's not really in bottom lists either, so it probably is quite easy to pass over in the scheme of things. So this may be a short episode and will be more or less just a review, but that does happen from time to time. Good evening, friend. Just step across the hall to the door straight ahead of you. Come in if you will. Sit down. Make yourselves comfortable. Please sit down. How good of you to come. Colonel Hawthorne, Mr. Hughes, Mrs. Langsford. This set that the visitors come to is built on stage 10 at MGM Studios and is, as Raiden says, for all intents and purposes, a working bomb shelter. Now, it does sound a little hollow, but these are the days when bomb shelter steel doors could be bashed in with poles, so we'll let that go. But because we're a little light on trivia, and the episode does have quite a systematic approach to presenting each of the guests and why they're there. We'll adopt that approach too and meet them one by one. And you, Colonel, do you recognize me? I believe I do. Served under me once, didn't you, Raiden? I did indeed. Second Lieutenant Infantry Regiment under your command, Africa, 1942. 
I recall it vaguely. I seem to recall something else, too. Well, it's not surprising it all doesn't flood back to you. After all, you had a few thousand men under you, a few thousand cogs. I was only one of them. But then again, you didn't court-martial all of them, did you, Colonel? That distinction you reserved for me. Ah, oh, yes. Mm -hmm. I do recall. You refused to lead an assault on a hill. Refused in the face of a direct order. The delay cost us almost a company of men. That was your contention to the court-martial board. And so I was stripped of rank, dishonorably discharged. You were fortunate, Mr. Raiden. Were I to have been able to dictate the sentence, I would have had you shot. I'm sure you would have, Colonel. I'm sure you would have. The actor playing Colonel Hawthorne was born in 1902, and his birth name was Teva Gaston Hubbard, but he changed it to Trevor Bardet in the 1920s and went on to be a really prolific actor. But it seems that despite having parts in films like Gone with the Wind and The Grapes of Wrath, he was more of a supporting player. Now, of course, as always, that comes with the caveat that I obviously haven't seen all of his output. So there may be something of a signature role in his 243 screen credits that I just don't know about. But even his IMDb bio says that he was generally cast as heavies who rarely made it to the end of the credits without being killed. An interesting note is that he was a writer of fiction as well and wrote a story called The Phantom Photoplay for Weird Tales magazine in 1927. But because his name Terva was quite unusual, they listed him as a female author. So here in One More Paul Bearer, he's fine. He fills his role well, he looks the part, and I'm not sure there's really much else to say about that. He does a good job. So here is the first part of the puzzle. Raiden disobeyed a direct order to lead an assault, and by the colonel's reckoning, that cost the lives of a company of men. Raiden was then dishonorably discharged. So, where do our sympathies lie here? Well, without more information, I think we have to take this instant at face value. Raiden isn't putting up any sort of defence. He's not saying that he refused to lead the assault for any particular reason. So all we can really assume is that he was afraid to. And while we can all sympathise with fear, at the end of the day this was his job and if what the colonel says is true, it cost the lives of a lot of men. He was in the military and everyone knows that the structure of that is following orders. So to receive a court-martial and be discharged is within the bounds of the organisation we assume he's chosen to be in. So in the absence of any defence by Raiden, we have to give this one to the Colonel. But what about our next guest? But what a wretched host I am. Neglect the lady present. Mrs Langsford. Do you recall who I am? Of course I do, Paul. I taught you in high school. I don't forget my students. Oh, sometimes the names and the faces get confused, but if I prod my memory, I usually can connect a name and a face. And in your case, a character. You flunked me, Mrs. Langsford. Dressed me down before an entire class, called me names, humiliated me. Humiliation. All right, Paul, let's talk about humiliation. Let's talk about your humiliation. 
Mr. Raiden was caught cheating in an examination. Not a crime, of course, but perhaps a bit indicative of the character of the person who does it. And when he was accused of this act, this cocoon, soon to become tycoon, tried to plant his crib sheets on an innocent student. How right you are, Mr. Raiden, that I stood you up on your feet, and in front of the entire class, I told you exactly what you were. But no room was there then, Mrs. Langsford, for a moment of compassion, for an iota of sympathy for a poor, frightened, desperate boy. Mr. Raiden, I've dealt with frightened and desperate children all my life, and it may surprise you to know that I've lent them more of sympathy and of compassion than I've lent them of knowledge. But neither sympathy nor compassion can be handed out wholesale like cheap bubble gum. The recipient must be worthy of them. And you never were. You were a devious, dishonest troublemaker. And in spite of all your millions, it's my guess you are still devious. You are still dishonest. And I've no doubt, even now, you're a troublemaker. Mrs. Langsford is played by Catherine Squire, who, according to her IMDb bio, was a bigger star on the stage than she was on the screen. She was born in 1903, so would have been in her late 50s by this point, and of her 63 screen credits, the majority of her work seems to be in the 50s and 60s with general television roles. A few in the 70s also, but then finally an appearance in the film When Harry Met Sally in 1989. What I notice about her here is that she gets the lion's share of what you would call the sailing-esque dialogue, that particular sharpness of the language and the turn of phrase. What she has to say is usually quite a mouthful, but I think she pulls it off beautifully, and she really has that school teacher-like way about her. You could imagine that if you are a well-behaved kid and you do your work, she would be the loveliest teacher you ever had. But if you stepped out of line, she could turn on a dime and put you back in your place. And that way that she has when she still refers to Raiden as Paul, like he was still a schoolboy, I think is performed perfectly. But when we consider with this one where our sympathies lie, I suppose it's one of those times when we are viewing this from a different time, so how this situation appears to have been handled in those days may seem a little backwards now, depending on your point of view. Now in my day, being humiliated or punished in front of the class for doing something wrong was pretty much par for the course in school. It was a way of the teacher making sure you didn't do something again, because you wouldn't want to be exposed to that embarrassment again. But I know teaching practice is one of those things that is constantly evolving, so would it be something that's done now? I don't know. But Raiden does offer some defence here. He says he was a poor, frightened and desperate boy. Frightened of what? Desperate for what? Again, without more information, we have no way of knowing. But could this be the root of everything? Could he have been the victim of an abusive parent who would cause him harm in some way if his grades weren't good. Mrs. Langford, however, seems to cut through all of that and pretty much just says, no, you were just a bad kid. 
Now in modern teaching, I would imagine the focus is more on the root cause of things and perhaps teachers in a professional capacity at least would be less inclined to write a child off as just being dishonest, devious and a troublemaker. They would perhaps try to consider why the child is that way and often it could be because of things happening at home that are causing the child to act up. But it seems Mrs Langsford is aware that compassion is a big part of her job, but Raiden was just beyond that. So do even the best teachers get to a point where they just say, actually, this is just a bad kid. It's a tricky one, but this isn't modern teaching, and I think Sailing was more just trying to illustrate that Raiden was just a bad guy throughout his life. So where do our sympathies lie here? Well, much as I think Catherine Squire does a great job here, there is at least a suggestion that Raiden was acting out of fear, and he was just a child. So maybe we'll give him the benefit of the doubt this time. Mr. Raiden, obviously many years have passed between now and the time you felt you'd suffered indignities at our hands. But what's to be gained by... A great deal can be gained, Reverend, a very great deal. You, for example, accused me of a lack of character, put a scandal over my head, destroyed my reputation. Yes, I remember. A girl, Mr. Raiden, a girl you drove to suicide. Because even at that early stage, you were not a man who held honor in very high regard. You can go to the devil, Reverend. Raiden! And you too, Colonel. Tonight, my friends, you will all go to the devil, and that is not a figure of speech. So with a colonel, a teacher, and a reverend, I'm starting to wonder whether that girl was killed in the library with a lead pipe. Our reverend is played by Gage Clark, who was born in 1900, and sadly would only have a handful of television roles after this one because he died only a couple of years later in 1964. Now from IMDB, it seems his career was actually only quite short. His first screen credit was in 1949 in an episode of Suspense, so he'd be almost 50 at that point. Now again, there's not a huge amount to say about him, but I think he's a good actor and he fits the part well, and all you can really say is that. As far as what Raiden is accused of here, well again there's not much to go on but he is accused of driving a girl to suicide and again offers no defence. He kind of insinuates that it was just scandal so maybe there's something to that but without more details we just don't know and he just seems to get angry. So it's hard not to draw some inference from that lack of defence. So again, I think we have to take things at face value and go with the Reverend on this one. So now we have the backstory of why Raiden has brought them all here. But now what's he going to do? Well, we get the backstory in about 12 minutes, so there's still a fair bit of story to go. The world is coming to an end this evening, ladies and gentlemen. At 11.45 there will be no more city no more country. At 30 minutes after midnight, there will be no more world. They are going to bomb us, and we are going to bomb them. By dawn, 
there will be nothing left but rubble and bodies. So now Raiden is setting up for the final part of his plan, and soon that red alert does start to sound. This is your civil defense announcer, repeating. The Air Defense Command has just declared a take cover signal. This is not a practice warning, not a drill. An attack by enemy forces is expected at any moment. You must seek the nearest shelter immediately. Martin Grams Jr. in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic says that Rod Serling commissioned the Deforest Research Group to find out exactly what would be said in an instant like this. And they put together this two-page speech for the radio announcer. And I did consider reading it, but, you know, it is what it is. Go indoors, seek a shelter, and so on and so on. But what is interesting is that none of the cast actually heard this on the set. The process of recording it was done separately. So the cast are just responding to a cue and then pretending to listen. Now in the shelter there is that rumour that the voice of the Conrad system was an uncredited James Coburn. And I wonder whether that's also the case here because it certainly sounds like him but I can't actually find confirmation of that. So now that Raiden has set his plan in motion and we discover that it's all been done to extract an apology from these three people who he thinks have wronged him, he thinks by putting them in fear for their lives that they will then beg him to stay, but he underestimates them. None of them think of themselves and all they want to do is get to their loved ones. You will beg my pardon. You will ask my forgiveness. And if need be, you will get down on your hands and knees to perform the function. Pretty pleased with sugar on it. How's that speak up, teacher? Pretty pleased with sugar on it. It's what children say to exact a favor. I don't want your favor, Mr. Raiden. Let me out of here. If I'm to spend my last quarter hour on Earth, I'd rather spend it with a stray cat or alone in Central Park or in a city full of strangers whose names I'll never know. So now that he's been taken down a peg or two, let's meet our host. Paul Raiden is played by Joseph Wiseman and despite having what sounds like a very British accent, he was actually born in Montreal, Canada in 1918 and he seems very much to me like a forerunner to actors like Jason Isaacs I think if Wiseman was born years later you could see him in the Lucius Malfoy role in the Harry Potter films he seems to have that perfect look and voice for villainy but it wasn't this archetypal well-spoken British sounding villain type role that really put him on the map. It was a villain role, but it was one where he was much more of a street-level criminal in the 1951 film Detective Story starring Kirk Douglas, and also an actor called William Bendix, who in a way was the first Twilight Zone leading man. Now Earl Holliman of course starred in the first episode of the Twilight Zone, but in 1958 Bendix starred in an episode of the snappily titled Westinghouse Desilu Playhouse, which was 
an anthology show hosted by Desi Arnaz of I Love Lucy fame. And the episode was called The Time Element and was written by Rod Serling. And it serves as a kind of proto-Twilight Zone, but that's a story for another day. In Detective Story, Wiseman played Charlie Giannini and his appearance there is in stark contrast to the very still portrayal of Raiden that he brings here. In Detective Story, he can't sit still and he's constantly moving. His body language is very big. When he talks, he makes all these massive gestures. So despite what came next after the Twilight Zone, I think Wiseman certainly had range. I heard a scream. They come running down the stairs and I collared them. This one gave me a struggle. I'm walking down the stairs. I'm minding my own business. The cop jumps on top. He starts beating my brain. All right. I'll come to you. Think I'm crazy to do a thing like this? Sit down. On this one, we found this. And this Jimmy. 22? Loaded. What's your name? Stand up. Janini, Charles Janini. I don't know nothing. I don't even know this guy. Asked, hey, do I know you? No. Take it easy, Charlie. Sit down. What's your name? So what did come next for Wiseman? Of course, you can't see an image of him and not think of one of his most iconic roles. One more Paul Bearer was televised in 1962, but it began filming in September 1961. Four months later in 1962, filming began on the first James Bond feature film in which he played the title role, Dr. No. From what I've read, it was Detective Story that turned on the Bond producers to Joseph Wiseman. But you can't help but watch one more Paul Bearer and see the similarities in the performance. It does almost seem like an audition for Dr. No, the kind of well-mannered host who actually means some harm to his guests. In both roles, Wiseman brings this almost unnatural stillness to the characters. He'll stand and talk, but his body is like a statue, and his face and head will move, but in a very careful and measured way. But he does bring something here that I think differs from Dr. No. So the typical Bond villain will be pretty much in control until Bond turns the tables at the conclusion of the movie. And there is this verbal sparring usually between Bond and the villain. And Bond may score a few hits, but ultimately the villain has him as a prisoner and he could, if he wanted, just kill him. They never do. Perhaps they should. But here that ever-present threat of death isn't there. We know Raiden hasn't brought them here to kill them because he's set up this elaborate deception. So when these verbal sparring matches occur, he presents his case to these people as to why they're so bad, but then they put it back to him and put him back in his place with the actual truth of the situation that they've previously been in with him. And he keeps trying to do this to verbally get the upper hand, but... As the episode goes on, he keeps getting beaten. And I think Wiseman quite subtly puts that up there on screen. That very slight deflation as each time he gets taken down a peg or two. 
we just get a glimpse of the child beneath the man. So what I find quite fascinating about his performance both on its own and in the context of him being the first movie series Bond villain is that before he was that Bond villain, he was this failed Bond villain. The nefarious plots of the villains in Bond movies are usually ridiculous and rely on a series of events happening that could easily go awry. And Raiden's plot is smaller and more localised, but in its own way equally ridiculous. And at each turn, he falls down flat. He can't win the verbal battles, so when it comes to unveiling the master plan, that just falls spectacularly flat. I have some reservations about the episode that I'll get to in a moment, but all in all I really enjoy Joseph Wiseman in this. With 95 screen credits to his name, he wasn't hugely prolific, but there's a steady body of work there that spans almost 50 years. And he seemed to spend his time mostly in television later in his career. And there is one more sailing connection when he popped up in the Night Gallery segment, Room with a View. But here, after his plan fails, he watches the bomb in his elaborate hoax go off on the screen. And it drives him mad, believing himself to be the sole survivor of a nuclear war. Hey, Mac, Mac, had a little bit too much? Hey, Mac. I let, didn't want it this way. Let me take you home, Max. I didn't want it this way. No, somebody, please. Max. Anybody want somebody listen to me? <laughs> I think there's a lot to like in this episode. All of the actors do a fine job, and it's an interesting take on the old Dark House scenario viewed from a different angle. We know the host's plans up front, and we sit back and watch as he tries to execute them. It's like knowing the Bond villain's plot before Bond does, and it's great to watch a master like Wiseman start out believing he now holds all the cards, only to fall apart in front of us. In Mark Zichri's critique of this episode, he writes that the sympathies of the audience are with Raiden. He says that he's the one who appears to be sympathetic while the others escape untouched, safe in their sanctimonious hypocrisy to destroy yet more people's lives. So it's for this reason that I've been tracking that throughout this episode. Because I don't actually agree, although I can see where he's coming from, I don't think these are people who are out to destroy other people's lives. You know, that's the whole point. Raiden sees them that way because it suits the narrative of his life the one that he believes, that these people have wronged him and the bad things that happened to him, they did them, they're their fault, when in fact they were reacting to what he did. It's like a thief going to jail for stealing and blaming the police for catching him when 
Actually, it's them who've committed the act that started that chain of events, so the fault lies with them. Langsford, Hawthorne and Hughes are presented as people of good character who have been brought to this place based upon a lie, and each presents their case as to why Raiden was responsible for their animosity towards him. And now they're presented with this scenario where he expects them to apologise to him. They have every right to be annoyed. I do think this is a flawed episode, but not for the reason that Mark Zickri says. So what exactly is Rod Serling's shining a light on here? What part of life is he illuminating? It seems to me that he's highlighting a trait or a type of person that many of us will know. The one who won't take responsibility for themselves. The one for whom everything that goes wrong with their lives is someone else's fault when it's actually their own. The one who can never seem to see that the common denominator in a series of incidents in which they feel wronged is actually themselves. When I was younger I knew a guy who would always get into fights when he went out drinking in bars and he'd always complain about how he'd end up in fights or getting thrown out of bars or getting arrested. Now unfortunately that is part of city living to a degree and everyone runs the risk of getting pulled into something that they don't want to be involved in. But for him, every weekend, without fail, he'd get in a fight. Now I only had to be in the same bar as this guy once to see exactly why he ended up getting into a fight every weekend. After he had a couple of drinks in him, you could see why it wasn't everyone else's fault. I've enjoyed seeing Raiden try to exact his plan, and it is a ridiculous plan in a way, but I accept a lot with the Twilight Zone. They don't have to be real world real, I accept them as fables, but it's more that I found sitting back and watching him watching this study of such a damaged character who can't be content with the wealth he's amassed, a really interesting thing to sit and watch. I think where my issue lies is with the ending. Now, that might depend on how you look at the Twilight Zone. On the one hand, you could say that this is just documenting stories that have happened. Raiden set this up, it failed, and it sent him mad and that's just the way it played out. Or you could look at it like I tend to, that the Twilight Zone has some sort of intervention, that the Twilight Zone sometimes hands out some kind of judgement. When we looked at Death's Head Revisited, a listener, a long-time friend of the show called Stephen wrote in afterwards and raised some issues with that show. And to paraphrase, his issues were along the lines of Despite the episode saying it wasn't about revenge, clearly, in the end it was. And also, if I recall correctly, he spoke about the kind of viciousness of that retribution. It was very much a kind of eye-for-an-eye thing. Now, we disagreed on how appropriate that was, because I often feel that the cosmic justice element of the Twilight Zone is very much like it holds up a mirror, and what comes to the person is a reflection of what they dish out. So in the case of that episode, Death's Head Revisited, 
The character became a prisoner in his own mind and subjected to the pain that he dished out to others. But here, yes, Raiden made three people fear for their lives and the lives of their families, so he's quite obviously done wrong. But here's the thing. Virtually from the moment Langsford, Hawthorne and Hughes come into the building, at no point does he truly have the upper hand. Maybe for a moment at the start while they're still a little disorientated. But he relays his grievances to them and they just bat them right back at him where they should be. Every time he gets the plan back on track, they pretty much just turn it back on him by simply saying, you brought these things on yourself. And when he reveals his ultimate plan, this way of getting them to apologize to him and to beg to stay in the shelter, not one of them will. And he's left with his plan in tatters and utterly humiliated. So this isn't a Nazi who has taken thousands of lives and so far escaped the law. This is a small little man-child who has tried to orchestrate a shoddy plan of revenge and failed and he's been left humiliated in the process. And while you could say that there is a Twilight Zone-esque irony in his punishment, he wanted these people to believe there was a nuclear apocalypse when there wasn't one. So in the end, it was him who believed there was a nuclear apocalypse when there wasn't one. I just really don't feel like there's any elegance in it though. It's more like a really interesting and engaging lead up to an almost tacked on payoff. I know, let's go with the he's gone mad twist again. So I appreciate that I often project my own view of the Twilight Zone as a punishing or rewarding force onto the show. And the show itself doesn't always explicitly make that claim. So maybe it's not about the Twilight Zone's decision to judge someone in this case. Maybe it's just documenting a story about a man whose own hubris drove him mad. And that's what it is. And if that's the case, then that is what it is. But still, even though it doesn't say completely explicitly, I do think these kind of episodes where someone gets their comeuppance do give the impression that someone or something is judging these people. But in this case, no judgment or punishment was required. Raiden's punishment had already happened he didn't get his apology, his plan failed and he was left to live his life as a small bitter man whose wealth couldn't buy the one thing he wanted and now he had to live with that failure too, which would have undoubtedly eaten away at him for the rest of his days. There really was no need for the Twilight Zone to step in at all, but on the other hand, maybe we're just not meant to take it so literally. Maybe this time we're supposed to look at it on a more metaphorical level. That actually he lived his life, but he just lived a lonely life. Because he could never let things go. And people always hurt us in some way. Some big, some small, and that's part of life. But that's something that Raiden could just never get a hold of. So I guess the success or the failure of this episode really depends on how you look at it. Mr. Paul Radin, a dealer in fantasy, who sits in the rubble of his own making and imagines that he's the last man on earth. 
doomed to a perdition of unutterable loneliness because a practical joke is turned into a nightmare. Mr. Paul Radin, pallbearer at a funeral that he manufactured himself in the Twilight Zone. Okay, let's have a read of some listener emails in submitted for your approval. had an email from a new friend of the show Josh and he says hi Tom your podcast has become a favorite for me so I became a patron the first time I cared enough about a podcast to do that by the way well thank you Josh I appreciate that I've been a huge fan of the Twilight Zone since childhood I'm lucky enough to be in the US and get to enjoy the sci-fi marathons twice a year my favorite way to watch but of course I have all the DVDs anyway However, what I really wanted to tell you is that your podcast achieved a few things for me. First, it is an enjoyable experience. Unlike a previous emailer, it takes the edge off my Los Angeles commute. Your delivery and tone create an AMSR effect that can take the edge off the stress of the day. Second, your thoughtful insights into how the Twilight Zone punishes and rewards have made me think that instead of kind of muddling along in an albeit successful career path that I should actually really go for what I want professionally. I'm not a kid, I'm in my late 40s, very happily married with a beautiful four-year-old girl. I work in the high fashion world of LA. It has its rewards and pains for sure. Like some, I have been secretly hoping for some Twilight Zone impact to affect the professional course of my life. Wishful or dangerous thinking perhaps. But maybe the mere fact that I'm thinking about it is just the impetus I need to make that move and go for it. Luckily my wife supports me in this and she loves the Twilight Zone too. We frequently rank our top 20 episodes and the list evolves with our mood. Anyway, inspiration comes in many forms and the genius of Rod Serling is a big one. There must be a reason that we watch these stories decades later. Thank you for your work in adding depth and understanding to this work that everyone listening loves. It makes a positive impact in many ways and I am hopeful that my small contribution makes that easier for you to continue. Best regards, Josh. Wow, what a great email. Thank you, Josh. You know, I completely understand where you're coming from, you know. I was in that position and partway through the Twilight Zone podcast, maybe... Five or six years ago now, I can't be sure, but that was my moment, my walking distance moment, where I thought there's got to be something else. There's got to be something different than this in the career um, aspect of my life. And that's when the big change came in, and that's when I couldn't really do the Twilight Zone podcast anymore because I didn't have the time because I was committed to that change. Luckily, things leveled out and, and it turned out okay, but you know, I hope the same for you. I hope whatever you decide to do, it works out. I guess we can't all be lucky enough to do the thing that we want to do most in life, but as long as what we do end up doing is something we can compartmentalize, if you like, say, okay, you know, not everyone's going to have the best job in the world, but as long as I can do it and then come home and and live the rest of my life in a kind of meaningful way, then that's hopefully the main thing. But if we can have both, 
then that is that you know that's the best of both worlds so that would that would be great if you can figure out a way to do that and i hope you do keep me posted man i would love to hear how that goes for you and thank you for your support on patreon anyone who throws a book or two in is you know really helping out so thank you okay i've had an email from mark and he says hello tom this is mark ward from warrington pennsylvania you noted in your last podcast about how nothing in the dark was the first episode to be directed by lamont johnson but was the third episode to be shown of his in broadcast order it is evident that you know the production order of the twilight zone could you refer me to your source for that information I always thought that Mark Zickery, with his book The Twilight Zone Companion, presented the episodes in production order, but I'm not sure. Would you mind shedding light with me on the production order of The Twilight Zone? Thanks sincerely, Mark, a loyal listener. Well, thanks for getting in touch, Mark. You know, I remember when I first started the podcast going through The Twilight Zone Companion and thinking, what's going on here? You know, everything's out of order, but I think that is it, that in The Twilight Zone Companion, it's in production order, but I don't think it necessarily prints what the actual production date is in the Twilight Zone Companion. It just puts them in that order. So what I did was I confirmed that in Martin Grams Jr.'s book, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, because that does have the actual production dates in it. So I don't have a list as such. I do think the Twilight Zone Companion is production order, but just to be sure, I went with Martin Grams Jr.'s book. Now, Martin Grams Jr.'s book does do them in broadcast order, but it does have those production dates in there. So that's the way I confirmed it, really. So I don't have a list as such, but I, I hope that helps you. Okay, I've had a few emails like this in the last week or so, but I'll just read out one um, just so I can pass on that thank you to everyone, really. This one's from a friend of the show, Daryl, and he says, Hey Tom, as an avid listener and happy voter, congratulations on winning the Rondo Award. The Twilight Zone has remained my all-time favourite television series, beginning in my childhood. Listening to your podcast not only brings back fond memories for me, but your insights also offer fresh perspectives on the many themes and objectives that have kept The Twilight Zone a classic programme, and one that remains relevant today. Thanks again for all you do to keep Rod Serling's beliefs and ideals for a better tomorrow alive and well. The recognition you've received is a testament to that, and it is so well deserved. Congratulations again from the other side of the pond in Michigan, and that's from Daryl. So to Daryl and everyone else who emailed me with similar uh, messages or tweeted me or posted something on Facebook, and there was a lot of them, there's too many to go through, I, I would probably sit here for you know, an hour or two just going through them, but just know that it is appreciated and anyone who helped uh, make that happen by sending in votes. So to Daryl and everyone, thank you for that. Okay, the last email is from Jeff and he says, Hey Tom, my favourite thing about the Twilight Zone podcast is how it breeds new life into episodes. I usually skip over because of how well I think I know them. I knew nothing in the dark was great but I haven't seen it since I was a younger kid and didn't realise how powerful it actually was. The podcast captures the feel and impact of these stories so well that it's almost like watching the episode for the first time. One particular moment I wanted to get your thoughts on was when Robert Redford asks Gladys Cooper to take his hand ending her life. 
She of course heavily resists, but then he says to her, Mother, take my hand, and she relents. I've always wondered why exactly those words convinced her to take their leap and trust him. It's such a beautiful moment, enhanced by an absolutely breathtaking score. In the middle of writing this, I received a notification about your Rondo Award win. Congratulations, it couldn't be more well deserved. Keep up the incredible work, Jeff. Well, thank you, Jeff. I'm going to pick up on a couple of things in your email. The first thing is when you wrote, I knew nothing in the dark was great, but I haven't seen it since I was a younger kid and didn't realise how powerful it actually was. And I think, for me, that really illustrates how sometimes we kind of grow into an episode of The Twilight Zone. And in the episode itself, Nothing in the Dark, Gladys Cooper kind of spoke about her younger life and how, you know, she saw clues of death, but as she's got older, those have built up and built up and she starts to see death more. And I think I said this in the episode, I can't recall, but maybe something similar. I think sometimes when we are young, we, we're not really mindful of those things. And like she said, she used to go out sunbathing. She loved the sun. And people would say to her, you know, it's bad for you to be in the sun so long. But she was young. She didn't care, you know. Death seemed to be so far away at that point that she wasn't really mindful of such things. But even in those times of our life when we are young we, and we see older people and the struggles they start to face as they get older and we start to see death moving around them, if you like. Again, it seems so far away, but then the older we get and we start to see similarities in the way our lives now are to the way we've witnessed in other people. I don't know whether I'm making this too complicated, but I hope you get what I mean. And I think that kind of illustrates it, that sentence that you wrote, how we sometimes grow into an episode of The Twilight Zone because it becomes more and more relevant to us. And Nothing in the Dark is one of those episodes that the older we get, it becomes more relevant. You know, sometimes we're in a walking distance place where we get to a certain age in our life and think, like Josh, you know, maybe I need to change course here. Maybe this isn't where I want to be or what I want to do, even if a lot of the things are actually right, like they were with Josh. So the second thing you spoke about when Redford reaches out and says, Mother, take my hand. It's something I, I thought about a lot when I was crafting the episode. I tried to look up what I could, you know, is there some explanation for that somewhere? And I couldn't really find one. And then, although I didn't listen to the commentary before I recorded the episode, I listened to it after to see if George Clayton Johnson mentions in the commentary why he used that, and he doesn't. Um, so, when I recorded the show, I kind of uh, sidestepped that one. But now you've uh, now you've put me on the spot, Jeff. But <laughs> I will do my best. You know, I don't know how right or wrong this is, but if we look at it in, in a very sort of simple way, then you could just call it a term of endearment. Like older guys sometimes get called dad or pops. You know, sort of slang but also slightly respectful too you know i'm giving you deference as a as a sort of father figure if you like and i wonder whether it's that you know just on that quite simple level you know mother take my hand you know an older lady i'm showing you respect 
Now, the other thing I thought about, and I didn't really want to say it because I didn't know whether it was too much, is that when you see Redford in that episode, how he's always in very non-threatening positions. He's out of lay down. And even when he's starting to try and convince her, you know, he doesn't sort of stand up and confront her. He's always in very passive, non-aggressive positions, you know. He, he wants her to come to him. And I think maybe it plays into that, that he wants her to feel that he is not someone who has something over her. But actually, she is a woman, and if it wasn't for women, none of us would be here. And of course, if it wasn't for men, none of us would be here. But, but then, you know, the mother as a figure, we call the earth Mother Earth. You know, everything is born from a woman. Everything is born from a mother. And I wonder whether it was some way of kind of recognising that and putting her in a higher up position than him. You know, Mother, take my hand. He's, he's paying her some sort of respect in that way. You know, it's a tricky one, and I'd love to find if George Clayton Johnson actually said something about it, but I can't. But if I ever do, then I will certainly come back to it and we will have this conversation again. But uh, thanks for bringing that up, Jeff. Putting me on the spot like that, but that's okay. Thank you, man. So that's our last email, but I've actually had an audio clip from a good friend of the show called Steve. So I always enjoy it when I get audio clips, and they're always welcome. So take it away, Steve. Hi, Tom. It's uh, Steve here from Sheffield. Uh, I'd just like to say a few words on the uh, the latest podcast, Nothing in the Dark. Um, and really, it's not so much a, a review of the of the podcast or, or the episode, but just a little bit of how the Twilight Zone sort of uh, affects me and educates me, actually. Um, it's one of my favourite uh, episodes, I'll just love it for its simplicity. It's a great story, and uh, and the characters and and the actors are just just excellent. Uh, obviously, I've, I knew about Robert Redford from way back. Seen him in in pretty much everything he's ever done. Um, but it's for me, it's the it's the other actors that are uh, uh, in the episodes, particularly in this one, Gladys Cooper. Um, whenever I watch a a Twilight Zone episode I always sort of do a little bit of research into who the other people are what they did uh, what other stuff they were in uh, the films, the TV a little bit about the lives as well um, and Gladys Cooper well, what, what a life she had uh, silent film actor a theatre actress uh, producing plays and films uh, in loads of quite well-known films, now Voyager with Bet- Betty Davis, uh, Rebecca Hitchcock's film, um, but you know what a great life! Um, services to uh, to drama. She was actually uh, a dame. She was uh, Dame Gladys Cooper, uh, which is uh, was something I didn't know. Uh, but yeah, just a great actress, very compelling to watch, excellent in this episode and in the other episodes that she, she appeared in. Um, R.G. Armstrong, didn't know very much about him at the time, but uh, looked up a little bit more about him. I'd seen him in other things, other TV shows and uh, and films. Uh, and interesting to know that he was a playwright. So I think when Rod Serling put these these episodes together, uh, he was choosing from sort of the cream of the crop, really. Uh, 
with Archie Armstrong and Gladys Cooper, uh, they were probably, you know, known uh, known elements. But uh, Robert Redford obviously wasn't at the time. He was brand new to acting. Uh, went on to do great things and have a long career uh, in film and and, uh, and everything. But but just. You know, it just shows you that Rod Serling had a real eye, not only for the writing, not only for the stories, but also for the people that he put into the uh, into the episodes. So, for me, the Twilight Zone is an education. It's just something that you can delve into. You can find out a little bit more about the people that were in it, uh, the sort of the the writers. Uh, the the incidental music, the uh, the actors and actresses, uh, it's a real education. Uh, so as I said at the start, it's not really a, a review of the episode in itself, although it is one of my favourite episodes. Um, it's more just to say that what a great education the Twilight Zone is, and for anyone who's not really into it, um, I think they could do a lot worse than than to to get into it and to if they're a bit of a film buff and uh, you know they appreciate they appreciate the sort of uh, the, the the actors and actresses of, of the time. Uh, so yeah, just thought I'd put this together and just to say thank you for a great podcast. Uh, excellent news on the Rondo Award as well. And uh, keep up the good work. And uh, I'll look forward to the next podcast. Thanks, Tom. All the best. See you soon. Bye-bye. Okay, so that was Steve. Thank you, Steve. And you're absolutely right. Uh, I think one of the great things about the Twilight Zone, like you say, is this wonderful time capsule element of it. Seeing these people either at the height of their career or having had a great career like Gladys Cooper or people at the beginning of their career, like Robert Redford, you know, it's a time capsule of that time, of these wonderful actors. So so it is an education, and it's a great aspect of that original show. So thanks for sending that in, Steve. Like I said, it, it's always welcome from people, but, but also thanks for being such a strong supporter of the show. I know you were sort of rallying the troops when the uh, the voting for the Rondos was up, so I appreciate that, man. Thank you. Okay, so that's our listener emails. If you want to get your thoughts on the show, then email me at tom at the twilightzonepodcast.com or you can connect on Twitter at twilightzonenet or on the Facebook page, Twilight Zone Podcast or on Instagram, also Twilight Zone Podcast. And if you want to contribute to the show and get bonus content, then your support is appreciated at patreon.com slash twilightzonepodcast. And with that in mind, I'd like to thank the following people who have left iTunes reviews, TigerMask13 and Machu21. Thank you so much. And also new Patreon supporters, Mike Bailey, Brian Durant, Joshua Head, who we heard from earlier, and Stephen Turner. Thank you, guys. I appreciate your support. At this point, I would normally go to Rod Sailing to find out what's coming next, but... I have an interview or two hopefully in the works and maybe one of them will come next but the next main episode where I look at an aspect of Rod Serling's work is going to be a little bit different and it might take a little longer to come out because it's going to take some work to put together but it's something that I've always wanted to do. So next time on the Twilight Zone podcast we're going to be looking at something that in 2018 had its 50th anniversary. And it's something that Rod Serling had a very significant role in. 
But what actually came out is quite different from what Rod Serling actually first put on paper in his first draft. And that's what we're going to be looking at in the next Twilight Zone podcast when we visit Rod Serling's Planet of the Apes. (laughs) 